We are back with our teaching in the book of Revelation. Now, the last time we were here, we were in chapter one, and we basically dealt with the opening or the introductory matters of this particular letter. We talked about how Revelation would be an epistle as well as a prophecy. Okay, and so with this epistolatory uh, format, we were given a salutation. That is simply saying, hello, how are you doing, so to speak, from God the Father and from God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And basically, that's what we dealt with in our opening part of it, okay, verses 1 through 7, all right? And so, and then we talked about the whole issue concerning, uh, since this is the revelation of Jesus himself, which is what the book of Revelation is all about in the first place. But since this is the revelation, uh, the, uh, and, and again, guys, revelation basically has to do with the unveiling or as it has to do with an eschatological appeal with respect to Jesus. And when I say that, that all I'm saying is this eschatological meaning how Jesus will be revealed at the last time. OK, so all of these things are the happenings of things or what things will be going on as we move towards the final uh, revelation of Jesus. That is the final time when Jesus would be uh, uh, he will come back. That's what we mean by the second advent. I'm trying to say it in such a way, guys, that would be simple. And trying to avoid all of those theological terms. Okay, so that's what I'm struggling on that point. But what I'm simply saying is, Revelation is dealing with all of the events that will be unfolding and leading up to the second advent. Advent simply means the, the physical and visible return of Jesus. Okay. So, and that's what Revelation is dealing with. Those events that will be leading up to the second advent and the return of Jesus. Up until the point when Jesus himself returns, he brings judgment, he establishes the kingdom. And it doesn't say a whole lot about the establishment of the kingdom. And one of the reasons Revelation doesn't talk a lot about the happenings of the kingdom, which will be the thousand year reign of Jesus, the Messiah. Okay. The 1000 year reign. It only has a brief portion of that in revelation chapter 20. And the reason that I believe it does not is because so much information concerning the reign of the Messiah was already talked about by the old Testament prophets. Okay. So, and it deals with that. And so it moves uh, from that reign of Jesus, the Messiah until the eternal age, and that is the kingdom of God. All right, but anyway, so let us just go ahead and get started. We're going to go on back to verse number eight. Let's pick up from where we stopped off. Now we have Jesus himself speaking, and now the question is, how do you know it is Jesus speaking? Because there are going to be certain issues that are wonderful to see, all right, wonderful to see. Okay, I tell you what, let's just get into the text and then we'll deal with all of the nuances as we move through. How about that? Verse eight, I am alpha. I am the alpha and the omega 
says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, if you notice something, and, and that's why you need to see uh, um, the, the video that we made in chapter one, uh, the first part of it, the first part of this section. But here's the point. Notice what the reference is. Alpha and Omega, right? Who is, who was, and who is to come. This is the same designation that is used of the Father in verse number four. Notice what it says in verse number four. From him who is and who was and who is to come. That is the reference to God the Father. The point that I'm making here is this. It, the same reference that is made to the Father, it is also being identified with the Son. As he calls himself, Alpha and Omega. Alpha and Omega simply is this. Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. So that is a way of him speaking of himself from the perspective of his eternality. Eternality simply means one who always exists. One who always exists. So the thing that we have to, I want you guys to see, this is Jesus who is speaking. This is Jesus who is speaking. He is speaking about himself. He is also describing things or ascribing, ascribing attributes to himself. In other words, what is Jesus like? He is speaking of his divine person. When we say his divine person, it just simply means Jesus is God. And here in verse eight, Jesus is claiming the same attributes that are shared by the father are his too. Now, he is not saying he is the father. The father and the son are separate. But nevertheless, the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit all come to make one God, one being. Notice what I said, one being of God. That being of God is shared by three persons. What three persons? The person of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So all three share these same attributes. All right. So Jesus, in declaring his divine person, that is, when I say his divine person, that he is God. What does he say? Alpha and Omega, he's, his eternality. Remember how he said earlier in the book of John, before even Abraham was, I am, his eternality. And then he says, says the Lord God, still in verse number eight. So that notice, the attribution itself declares he is what? The Lord God. And then again, the same att attributes that was ascribed to the Father, and this is how we got into that part, who is, who was, and who is to come, and he calls himself, Jesus calls himself the Almighty. That is the Almighty God. And we see that attribute being even used in the Old Testament, because Jesus was the God of the Old Testament, who appeared to the fathers and the prophets, but we see that same attributes as almighty 
when God appeared to Abraham and God called himself, I am El Shaddai. I am God Almighty. So these attributes that are used of God the Father are also the same identical attributes used concerning or of God the Son, that is Jesus. All right? Not making him the Father, but simply saying, indicating for us, he is God just as much as the Father is God. All right? All right, enough of that one. But that's our opening in verse number eight. As Jesus begins to speak, declaring his person as God. And now we move into verse number nine. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. Okay, so now we have John, John the Apostle speaking, all right? He introduces himself as a fellow partaker in tribulation. And that's because of the persecution that was happening to Christians during that particular time. So John is letting us know and he's letting the church know because remember now, as we said earlier, that the letter of the book of Revelation, the letter of Revelation was written to seven churches at the time of John. OK, and doing and to these people, it had a significance. Not only was it prophetic and we'll talk about the prophetic elements as we get there, but we need to keep that in mind. But it also had a relevance, a meaning for that day. And that time and during that particular time to the which John was writing this letter, which it was being revealed to him, there was a great persecution of Christians by Rome. And John is indicating that he is a sharer in their sufferings by the hand of the Roman Caesars. OK, so but anyway, and all of this is because of the gospel of Jesus. John indicates to us that he was on an island called Patmos. And Patmos was basically, uh, it was an island that Rome sent prisoners to. It was basically a penal colony. That's what we would call it today. Like former Australia once was with Great Britain. A penal colony, all right? And he said he was there. He was being punished. He was being uh, exiled to Patmos because of his witness of Jesus, because of his preaching of the gospel. Then he said that he was caught up in the spirit simply means he was caught up, moved by the Holy Spirit. And then it says uh, uh, on the Lord's day. Now, this is not the best translation of that particular Greek phrase, because the word uh, for Lord is actually an adjective. And so it doesn't mean on a specific day known as the Lord's day, because a common misunderstanding is this. And even we have it now. We want to call Sunday as the Lord's day because it is the day of the Messiah's resurrection. Nowhere in scripture, nowhere in scripture is Sunday 
ever call the Lord's Day because of Jesus' resurrection on that day. Nowhere. And nowhere in scripture is Sunday ever referred to as the Lord's Day. And it has been a misunderstanding. And I think this uh, particular translation has caused some of the problem. But to make a long story short, the word in Greek is an adjective. And basically, it could be understood and should be rightly understood as Lordy, L-O-R-D-Y, as a Lordy day. Or in other words, we'll see this word sometimes used in other Greek manuscripts when referring to a, an, an imperial day. The day of an emperor, some, somehow the emperor is some day he, to, he is to be lauded or praised or one he gives great recognition to. So he calls it because of what is going on. That's what John is doing. What is going on? John is calling this a lordy, an imperial day, a day of great exaltation because of the revelation that he is receiving. Okay. He is not calling it Sunday, but anyway, with that in mind, and then he begins to say he heard this voice speaking behind him like the sound of the trumpet. So, and by that notice, and we'll talk about that. The voice that speaks to him is the voice of Jesus. This is the same voice that was speaking to him in verse number eight. And I pause right there simply to say that we should not confuse to think that when it says I'm the Alpha and the Omega and who is and what's to come, that was not the father because those same terms were used of the father. But the point is, Clearly, the voice who speaks will be identified as the son of God. All right. So let's move. Verse number 11. Saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. Okay, let's stop because we don't want to get too much into those uh, 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 things concerning Jesus, his appearance. But let's, let's, let's talk about it. So what happened when he heard the voice, he got a direction to create what we now call the book of Revelation, the letter for them, and write the things that he see. Notice, write in the book what you see, and that is the things that are happening now, and later on, we're going to see the things that will be revealed to him concerning the future, and the intended addressees for what John is to write are to the seven churches. And those seven churches were simply enumerated. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. We'll have much more to say about the seven churches when we get to chapter two and three. But anyway, so the letter, the recipient of this letter or revelation 
are to the seven churches. And so then John said he turned around to look. And you got to remember, John is seeing by virtue of a vision. He is caught up in the spirit and seeing these things, this revelation, by virtue of a vision. And John saw seven golden lampstands, okay, or menorah, as some may call it. But now, concerning the imagery, remember what we said about imagery in the book of Revelation. Usually in Revelation itself, the, the meaning of the imagery will be determined by the book itself. The book will tell you what these things mean, or you will find the imagery used in the Old Testament already. So in other words, the Bible itself, you don't have to guess. It's rarely ever a time, rarely ever. You have to guess what those, what those images mean. The Bible will tell you what they mean. And right now, we're not going to talk about what the lampstands are because later on in this same chapter, Revelation will tell you the meanings of the lampstand. Okay, but I just wanted to bring that part out to you once again. But he, stopped, he saw the lampstands and then he saw the appearance of Jesus as a man. And notice he says a son of man. Now, what we have to understand is this. The appearance of Jesus, as we will see in the book of Revelation, overall is, a, is an appearance of judgment. So when we look at the different things talked about Jesus, whether it's his hair, whether it's his eyes, or his, the way he's dressed, or even his feet, these things are a picture of judgment. And the imagery is that Jesus is standing as a God and a judge in the midst of the church. He is fully aware of everything that is happening in the church. And as the God and judge of the church, he warns the church of his own impending judgment. Okay, so that's the image that we are going to develop in Revelation as we look at the person of Jesus in chapter one. And as we move in chapters two and three, as we move in chapters two and three, Certain parts of this imagery will be taken. So when he'll talk about the church of Ephesus, he'll take a certain part of that imagery of his person that we're talking about here. And he'll say, I am he who has this and who is this way and who has this. And then he'll begin to speak with the church. So with that imagery, that part of his imagery that we talk about here, he will present himself to a particular church. And I know that's a little premature, but it's good to see that even now. He presents himself as the God of the church, okay? Or as the God of that local church, all right? And how he sees that local church. But nevertheless, let's continue on. So he is in the middle of the lampstand, and then it says he's clothed with a robe reaching to his feet and the golden sash. And the golden sash is an indication of his royalty, of his royalty. Verse 14, his head and his hair were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it was, has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. 
All right. So now let's let's kind of finish that personal description that we have of Jesus's uh, physical appearance. So it talks about his hair being white like wool and like snow, white like wool and snow in white would indicate the purity and righteousness and holiness of the Messiah, Jesus. Okay. And it also indicates his age or it speaks of once again, his eternality, one who has existed even before the world began. So it speaks of his, what his eternality, he, Jesus is eternal and it speaks of his holiness, that white. And we see this all throughout the Old Testament when it speaks of white being of righteousness and of holiness. Then it also says that his eyes were like a flame of fire. And as a flame of fire with his eyes, they burn. So it speaks of his Jesus being able to see all things, but not only does he, and he, and his vision burns through. So it is a penetrating vision of Jesus. And also by the issue, by the sense that is a flame of fire. Oftentimes fire is used in the sense of judgment. So once again, what are we doing? We're talking about the appearance of Jesus. One who stands as a judge. He sees all. His eyes penetrates through all things. Jesus knows the motives for all things. He does not only he does not only know what you do, he knows why you do it. And that's important. Okay? But nevertheless, these are the attributes that we're bringing out about Jesus as he stands in the midst of the churches or in the midst of his people. Then verse 15 talks about his feet being like bronze. Bronze also shines. Bronze, we call it brass today. What is interesting too, bronze was also the material made of the altar of burnt offerings. And so, and, and this is basically where the sacrifices were made. Sacrifices for sin that was made. So, and this is also too, no, the sacrifice. Let me slow it down just in case you don't guys get it. Old Testament. Okay. When you get came to the temple, the first thing that you would see once you got beyond the curtains, once you got beyond the curtains and walked into the outer court of the temple would be the altar of burnt offering. This is where you would make your sacrifices and namely the sacrifice for sin. Here's where the animal was slaughtered. The blood was taken, placed upon the altar and part of the carcasses of the animal was plate were placed on the altar of burnt offering. That's the indication is, is a place where you deal with sin. It is a place of judgment for sin. You got it. That's why the animal was killed. It was an act of judgment. So therefore his appearance with the feet as bronze is also further indication because notice what I said again, guys, this whole picture is of Christ as a judge, one who stands in judgment of the church. And this is why we see the feet being imaged in this way. All right. And it said his voice was like the voice of many waters of his greatness. Remember, he said he is God almighty. All right. And so what happens? Verse 16 in his right hand, he held seven stars. 
Out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in his strength. So, and the further appearance in his right hand, seven stars. Now, we have two images now that have not been given um, a description for the lampstands and now the seven stars, but they'll come out at the end. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And notice the two-edged sword, the sharp sword, is also what? Even a further indication of judgment. And this judgment proceeds from his mouth. So therefore we see that Jesus stands to proclaim judgment to his churches. And then it speaks of the glory that was upon his face. And what was that glory? This was the absolute Shekinah glory on Shekinah glory, meaning the visible glory of God. Shekinah glory means the visible glory of God. So we have the full manifest visible glory of God upon his face. How? His face shone like the sun at his full strength. That means it's impossible to even look upon the face of Jesus. All right. Okay. So now with the appearance of the Lord standing in judgment, standing among what? The seven candlesticks with, 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 with what into his hand? In his right hand, the seven stars. Now let us see the effect of this appearance upon John. 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one and I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and of Hades. All right. So the effect of John, John said he fell. <laughs> it was over. It was shocking to the point. John said he almost, he just literally passed out, so to speak. He fell like a dead man at his feet. What is interesting to see is, do you remember how John was? One of the last pictures that we got with John being in a real close proximity with Jesus was at the last, we call it the last supper, but it's actually the last Passover. And at the Passover table, John sat next to Jesus and he leaned his head on Jesus' bosom. And that was the last picture that we have of John in close proximity. But now notice the difference, the difference in it. What I want you guys to see is the difference not only in how Jesus is projecting himself, okay, but the true nature of who he is. He is more than a man. He is God Almighty. And this has taken John aback so much. It shocked him so much. He just fell completely at his feet. He no longer, he can't even imagine himself laying on his breast. He understands that his place now is at Jesus' feet. But nevertheless, it is a striking thing to see. But anyway, and there is a comfort that, give, that Jesus gives to John. He touches him on his, uh, with his right hand and tells him not to be afraid. Notice what Jesus calls him. He calls himself. He says, first and the last. Once again, that is speaking of his what? Of his divine attributes. That Jesus is the eternal 
God. He is the one he who has no beginning. He is the one who has no end. He is he begins all things. He is at the end of all things, if you'll let me say it that way. But nevertheless, and then he continues certain attributes concerning himself, speaking of his eternality, his eternal existence. He calls himself the living one. Notice these things that he says, first and the last living ones are attributes that only God can have. So once again, what, what is Jesus saying about himself? As the father is God in every way, so is he. As the father has life within himself, the son of man also has this same what? Life in himself. He calls himself the living one. Then he be, now he speaks to in the second part of verse 18. He says, I was dead and behold, I'm alive forevermore. Now he speaks to his humanity. So although he is God, he is also what? Man. And being found, being found as a man, he was given a human body. And with that human body, he was able to be put to death. And this is what he's referring to. I am one who was dead. He is referring to his death by crucifixion. All right. And I'm alive forevermore. He is referring to his resurrection. We see the two natures of Jesus. He is 100% God Almighty, and he is 100% a human being. So this is what was being referred to in verses at the end of 17 and verse 18. And then he says, after speaking of that, uh, that he is God, <laughs> that he is also man, one who died and rose from the dead, then he also speaks of that victory that he accomplished by virtue of his death and resurrection. Notice what I said. The victory that he accomplished by virtue of his death and resurrection. He says, I have the keys of death and Hades. What you have to understand, it just simply means this. Not only does he have the authority, right? And, th and that's the most part of what he's saying. The authority. So he... He exercises all power over death. Now, he, okay, I'll slow it down. When Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden, okay, he brought death to the human race. But remember, it was Satan who was urging Adam to sin against God. And this is what he did when Satan came into the serpent. But we're not going to get into all of that. But by virtue of tempting Adam to disobey God, this is what Satan did. All right. When Adam did disobey God, Satan gained. Satan gained the authority of death over mankind. And this is what the Bible talks about in the book of Hebrews. When it, talk, when it also talks about the death of Jesus our Messiah, how he took that. He took the authority. And that's what's meant by keys. Keys usually are a symbol of authority. Oh, and so Jesus took that authority back from Satan. Satan had the authority over mankind. 
All right. So when Jesus died and rose again by this act, he took. And the reason why I asked a little more. The reason why he was able to do that is because since it was by man that death came into the world, it became necessary by man death should be conquered. So notice what we kept talking about here. The two natures of Jesus. One is divine. He is God. The second part of his nature, he is a man. Okay. And so by this second part of the nature of Jesus, that is he, um, he is a man and what he accomplished in the righteousness that he lived, he lived a righteous life. All right. And that he died the sinner's death. And that he was God's Messiah sent to accomplish the will of God and even he himself being God. So as the God man. So we bring all of that together as the God man. What he took back the keys, the authority over when you say Hades, it simply means the place of departed spirit. Those who have died. It just simply means that simply those who have died. So as the God man, Jesus took back by his death and resurrection, the authority over death for all of mankind. And that's what he's stressing here. Okay. The keys of death and Hades. So let's finish this thing out. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Okay, so now we have the command of Jesus to John, and this basically forms the structure of the book of Revelation, and it aids us in how to properly understand the book of Revelation. What does Jesus tell him to do? He tells him to write. Write what? The things which you have seen, and that is the present things that he is seeing. The present things that John is seeing is the glorified son of man, the glorified Jesus. Okay. When it talks about Jesus and all of those attributes, the eyes of flame, the hair, like the wool and things like that, that is the things that he has seen. And this basically forms chapter one. Then it says, and the things which are, this will be with respect to chapters two and three. That is the seven churches. Remember, he says, write these things to the seven churches, Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum, Thyatira, all the way up to Laodicea. Right. This will form chapters two and three. And then he says, and the things which will take place after these things. And that is that would be the prophetic element of the letter. That would be what the prophetic the prophetic parts of the book of Revelation that will basically be from chapters four all the way to the end of the book in chapter 22. So what does Jesus command him and how is the structure of the book of Revelation? He commands him to write the thing that he sees. That is chapter one, the things which are 
That is chapters two and three and the things that which that will be. That's chapters four through twenty two. And then finally, we go through meaning for some of those descriptors that he spoke about earlier. Remember, he said the lampstands. Jesus was pictured as one who was. And I think the idea seems to be walking or in the midst of the seven lampstands. What were the seven lampstands? Now he tells him in verse number 20, the seven lampstands, as well as the seven stars, which he were which he which Jesus was holding in his right hand. Notice he says, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now some take this as messengers, meaning like the pastors of the church. I don't think so. I think the idea literally means the seven angels, angelos. See the word angelos can mean both angel and messenger. That's why some say messenger and then understand and interpret that to be pastor or whatever or shepherd or whatever. But I think the meaning should be taken uh, uh, simplistically and literally in the sense that angel. So to the angel, referring to every church has an angel for that representative for that church. An angel representative for that particular church. And so with respect to the church, he writes to the angel of the church. So the angel is symbolic of stars. So, and basically all throughout, we will see, and we see that also in the Old Testament as well. Stars are representative of angelic beings. Stars are representative of angelic beings. You also see that in Isaiah chapter 14, but nevertheless, we don't want to get into all of that. So the angels are the stars and the lampstands represent the seven churches. Okay. All right. All right, guys, with that introductory matter and what we basically introduced was the glorified person of Jesus, one as God and also as man, the judge of the churches themselves. With that introduction, Next time we come back, we'll get into chapters two and we'll start talking. We'll begin our discussion on the churches themselves. All right. Catch you next time. Have you subscribed yet? What are you waiting for?